The world is in a perilous state, and what we have lost and destroyed over the past few decades is inexcusable. Grief and frustration infect many of us. Yet it would be more inexcusable to give up, not to save and protect what can be. There is so much beauty and mystery in our world that deserves our care and respect. Our food system is fragile, and so is all the life that depends upon it. Life that depends upon us. Acknowledging the climate crisis and the responsibility it demands of us is not done lightly. And that's where courage comes into it. As global challenges erode the pillars of food security, its availability, access, utilisation and stability, we can choose to watch on as silent witnesses or find the inner strength to change our trajectory. What we do today will determine our tomorrow. Igniting hope and mobilising people with better narratives towards an exciting vision is what's needed. Using our imaginations to redefine how our society interacts with the planet, harnessing traditional knowledge and employing innovative technologies will set us on a better path. These actions will help create a truly sustainable and climate-resilient food system that nourishes communities and regenerates landscapes. We can fill the leadership void by stepping out of our comfort zone, shifting mindsets and inspiring behaviour change. Climate courage is the mental and moral strength to express our fears, challenge the status quo and help bring to life the vision that we know is possible. Hello, my name is Matthew Sortino and welcome to Moments of Clarity. The voice you just heard then was that of Dr Anika Molesworth, my guest today. Anika is a farmer, scientist, storyteller and the author of an incredible new book, Our Sunburnt Country, in which you heard part of the prologue. As you can tell, Anika is a passionate advocate for courageous action to save our land, food and world from the climate crisis at our doorstep. Anika is making her voice heard across Australia and the world as she works to save her family farm in the semi-arid far west of New South Wales and in turn Australia's rural places. Anika is in touch with the land and understands its necessity. She understands the interconnection between the actions we take, the climate and our food security. This is why she is dedicated to acting on and communicating the need for sustainable farming, environmental conservation and climate change action. Anika completed a Bachelor of Science specialising in agribusiness, a Master's of Sustainable Agriculture and a PhD in Agricultural Science. She has been working in international agricultural development for the past six years, giving her a holistic perspective of agricultural issues at global scale. Anika is a founding director of Farmers for Climate Action, a movement that puts farmers on the front line of climate change and at the centre of climate solutions. She has founded ClimateWise Agriculture as a knowledge-sharing platform for climate change as it relates to food systems around the world. Anika has received countless awards for her work, including 2015 Young Farmer of the Year, a finalist for the 2017 Young Australian of the Year New South Wales Award, the 2017 New South Wales Young Achiever Award for Environment and Sustainability, the 2018 Green Globe Awards Young Sustainability Champion, the New South Wales and ACT Regional Achievement and Community Award for Agricultural Innovation, the 350.org Heroes of a Low Carbon Economy Youth Champion, and in 2019, a Future Shaper by InStyle and Audi. Anika was also named 
as a woman of influence by the Australian Financial Review. In 2020, she was awarded with the Emily Hensley Award for Self-Discipline, Integrity, Compassion and Contribution to the wider community. You can follow Anika on social media at Anika Molesworth or on her website, anikamolesworth.com. It was an honour to speak with someone as passionate, active and influential as Anika. It was an absolute thrill and I cannot wait for you to listen to our conversation. So without further delay, I bring you Anika Molesworth. Anika, welcome to Moments of Clarity. Thank you so much for having me, Matthew. How do you define the work that you do and, you know, what can um, people that get to know you expect? Well, I call myself a, a farmer, a scientist and a storyteller because I find it difficult to pigeonhole exactly what I am doing and I feel like I'm constantly evolving and tweaking what I am doing to make the greatest impact on this cause that I'm working on. And that cause is how climate change is impacting the food and farming system and what we can do about it. Um, Really enabling and accelerating all the solutions that are within the food and farming system to deal and overcome the climate challenge. So I work in that general sphere. And can you? I, I would love to go into depth in in some of these um, points that you you may talk about in a moment. But you've just released your book, Our Sunburnt Country. Um, congratulations! Thank um, you. How did you get to a point of being, you know, moving from farmer, scientist, storyteller to to author of what is a, a well known, published by Pan Macmillan? You know, a genuine story of your life and your work how how did you come to that journey and realize I've got a book here and I want to actually you know bring this out there Mm -hmm. well I've always loved writing like I I love the written word and I love playing with words and you know the the placement of words in certain orders like make people feel certain things like imagine worlds in their mind um you know inspire them to do certain actions So I love the craft of writing and I've always had it in the back of my mind, you know, someday I would love to write a book, but I've just never found the time, never had the the opportunity to sit down and put pen to paper. And it wasn't until the start of 2020 when um, the COVID situation really started to escalate in Australia and my calendar was suddenly clear of its commitments that I sat down with, you know, all my notebooks that I had been collecting over the years, scribbling notes into, and really started to form those ideas properly and work out, you know, what kind of narrative I could tell um, and how I could try and tell this. And I am very passionate about communicating climate change, but not in a way that is abstract and academic, because I think that is one of the reasons that so many people feel disconnected from the issue and not very engaged in acting on it. So I wanted to write in a way that was personal, which was a a story which actually put the humanity inside of the climate crisis. 
And I learned very quickly that it, it couldn't just be my story too, that there are so many people within this food and farming system impacted by climate change. And the story was only going to be told well if I included that diversity of voices and voices from around the world. And so that really set me off on interviewing amazing people, brilliant people, farmers from, you know, Argentina, Kenya, Nigeria, right around the world, um, scientists, uh, nutritionists, academics, advocates. And it painted like the most incredible picture to me of how complex the food and farming system is, how it is being seriously challenged by a changing climate, but also the amazing people working on this issue. You know, I was just so inspired after every call that I had with these people that despite the challenges um, that they were so aware of, they were getting up, you know, day after day and working to make something better. And having collected those stories, I felt such a responsibility to tell them well and authentically and to share what these people are doing because they made me feel so hopeful and I wanted to share those stories of hope and vision and inspiration with everyone. Pan Macmillan actually reached out to me and said, you know, oh, if you've ever thought of writing a book, uh, let us know. And I nearly fell off my seat because I literally had, you know, my scrapbook open, jotting down ideas of how I would write a book. So I was very fortunate in that regard. So I put together a proper book proposal, submitted that to their team. I went through all the proper processes of getting approved um, and a contract drawn up. And then I was set on my path of writing, which I thoroughly enjoyed. I loved it. Um, I became a bit of a hermit, um, but <laughs> that suited me well. And then, yeah, the end of last month, um, 31st of August, the book was launched into the world and it's been getting some really good feedback so far, which I'm absolutely thrilled about. Oh, brilliant. Um, I did see you sort of getting the final copy from the printer, you know, the, the it didn't look like a book at that point, just more like a big pile of paper. Um, <laughs> but it was amazing and I saw your excitement in that process and, and all the hard work obviously, you know, paying off and then getting that first delivery. You know, how did it feel to have achieved that? Because you had achieved so much already and, and you know, you've, you've made commitments to yourself that you've, you've gone through with. But what was it like at that moment when you knew oh, this was done? Yeah, yeah. Um, a lot of different emotions, sort of waves of, you know, confidence and excitement and, oh, my gosh, I can't wait to get this out into the world, to moments of a lot of self-doubt and, oh, my gosh, like, have I, have I got the right information in there? Have I referenced this properly? Have I misunderstood or misinterpreted the stories of the people I interviewed um you know I'd hate to have done that yeah and then sort of having these waves of oh my god I, I hope no one reads my book <laughs> which is a terrible thing to think when you're about to release a book <laughs> so I felt it all but I'm very happy with it now and of course you know every day you, you learn something new. You, like, you, you grow and evolve as a person. And, you know, I, I think, um, oh, I wish I had included this. Or, oh, wow, that's, a, that's an amazing stat. Like, oh, gosh, that would have done so well in Chapter 2 or something. But you can't let perfectionism or, you know, that self 
you know, that critic in your mind holds you back. And I wanted that book to be out in the world and it's out in the world and it's a book that I'm very proud of. So those other stats and stories we'll just have to wait for book number two, I reckon. <laughs> yeah, that's it. And and as a scientist, as well as a storyteller, as well as someone sharing their own personal journey, you would have had that internal battle between, you know, is this utterly ironclad factual and unchanging versus, you know, I need to tell a story that reaches people's heart to then, you know, my feelings and my perspective matters too. How did you balance that? Yeah, quite challenging actually. And because I had just come out of my PhD, the yeah mid to end of 2019, my, my PhD thesis was approved. And so I had spent the previous four and a half years being trained and writing in a very academic, scientific style where the facts are presented in tables and charts. Um, there is no emotion in there. There is no story in there. Um, I had difficulty reading my own work. It's so (laughs) foreign almost. And I think that's one of the reasons I actually had a lot of difficulty with my PhD and doing the thesis writing because I love telling stories from the heart and I love talking about the emotion and describing scenery and that made the, the, the scientific academic writing style quite difficult for me to actually complete. But this book, on the other hand, where I was encouraged by my publisher to put myself in there and to talk about my hopes and my fears and my, my grief and um, my happiness, um, to paint a landscape through my words, you know, I, I flourished with that challenge and yeah, the book really just it flowed out from the tip of my fingertips. <laughs> yeah. You know, I often talk to people that are wishing there was a, a messenger for the for the seriousness of climate change and and you've, you know, become a messenger. To to want to do this, did you notice that there was that gap in the market almost? That there was a gap between the science and reality versus what gets to the to the bottom of people's emotions? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm drawn to stories about climate change and people who are dealing with um, the difficulties with the environment um, and people who are working to overcome them. And yeah, there's there's some great books out there, of course, but there's not a lot, um, especially within the Australian context, especially within the food and farming system. Um, there's very few books, really. So I realised there was a great need to fill that space and to tell that story and what a responsibility I have because I have that background in in science and understanding the complexity of climate change and what it means. I also live on a farm in, in far western New South Wales on Willakali country and I can walk out in the paddock and see what a drought actually is in real time. And I feel that, um, you know, to my core, that that challenge of living through droughts and dust storms and heat waves, seeing the impacts on livestock and vegetation, on the, the community. And then that was, you know, coupled with my love of writing. It was sort of, you know, this com- this perfect combination for me to then write a book on this topic. I want to go now to the beginning of your book and, and to to Melbourne. You you started your journey in, in the big smoke. Can you, you know, capture that journey from the city and what you learnt from your grandma specifically and then moving mm. 
and then how you ended up in um, the far west of New South Wales. Yes, I spent a lot of my childhood in Melbourne and I did all of my primary and secondary schooling in Melbourne. Um, And so I think I had a a rather, you know, normal urban upbringing um, where, you know, food came from a supermarket. We had a backyard and that was my, you know, my major interaction with the natural world. Um, I guess I was very lucky that my parents have a great interest in the environment. So they always encouraged us to, you know, go for walks on the beach or camping trips in, you know, the Grampians. So we had these lovely times to escape and my parents always, you know, encouraged us to, you know, lean in close and like ask questions and study, you know, the funny little fungi and mushrooms or turn over the rocks and the the logs and look at what critters are crawling under them. It was from them, I guess, that I really developed my curiosity of the natural world. My grandmother lived in a small house at the back of our property, and so I um, had a very strong relationship with my grandparents, um, and I spent a, a lot of time in their house. And my grandmother had was very strict about not wasting food. Um, and as a kid, you know, typical kid you know I I didn't want to eat the black bananas and oh my god the bread's gone moldy how you know (laughs) um so I was always you know protesting about what was being served up on my plate in granny's house but she really reinforced to me that you know be thankful for your food um and you know if you can eat it and it's healthy and it's nutritious then you know don't waste it and this sort of this theme of respect respecting food um, and understanding its importance to your your personal health and your development and not wasting this this precious life giver uh, is a theme that then carries out throughout my book. I was 12 years old when my parents then purchased our farm in far western New South Wales near Broken Hill and coming out here from you know, Melbourne life. I mean, my eyes nearly fell out of my head at the, you know, the vastness of this landscape. The horizons just go on forever. It's big sky country. You would see emus marching across the landscape and then you would stumble across their nests of, you know, these giant watermelon-sized green eggs. It was just fascinating. And I fell in love with this place very quickly. It was wild it was untamed it was what a place for a kid to (laughs) experience but the year we purchased this this farm was the year 2000 which was the start of the decade-long millennium drought so much of Australia during the years of 2000 to 2010 had little to no rainfall and the far west of New South Wales um, was no exception. It was very badly hit by that drought. And over the years, I sort of, I just watched it suffer. You know, the vegetation was disappearing. The landscape was becoming silent, like the birds vanished. Um, the dams, there was no more water in the dams and there was just mud cracks at the bottom of them. Um, selling the sheep because there was little vegetation left out here. And then the dust storms, the dust storms just started rolling in. And, yeah, if you've ever sort of lived through a dust storm or experienced a dust storm, you sort of see this orange tinge on the horizon and 
you know, you feel this wind and this noise like building up around you. And within a matter of minutes, like you were just engulfed, you know, from the soil to the sky as far as you can see is just dirty red sand. You're holding a handkerchief to your mouth to actually breathe. It's whipping against your skin like a lash. And yeah, you're you're running inside and you're closing all the doors. It's it's a really um frightening experience and makes you feel very small and insignificant in the the face and the force of nature. So all of that experience really um, opened my eyes to how fragile the environment is and how connected people are to the landscape and how dependent we are on its good health. And that's what really sparked my interest in climate change. We're, we're at a point now where I think in the cities, for the first time in somewhere like Melbourne, we're experiencing nature at our doorstep, but it's in the form of something invisible like a virus. And so many people are just unable to conceptualise or understand that and um, don't understand it's the reality of it. And I think there are many things that the climate has, you know, with its changing nature of the climate, things have happened slowly um, but surely, you know, around Melbourne and Victoria that people sort of are still hidden if they're in the city. But you don't get that if you're, you know, out near the ocean or, you know, on the farm. The idea of actually being interconnected with nature is something that's been removed from humanity, at least in the the developed West, you know. So many parts of the world aren't like that, as we know. But um, moving, that move to the country, was that something that was, I guess, before the drought hit, what were your parents doing in in Melbourne and then what made them move? And was it to get closer to nature? Was it just an opportunity? What actually brought them there that, you know, to, to get out of the city? Mm-hmm. Well, my parents have backgrounds in botany, geology and anthropology, and they have a a real love for the environment um, and have always sort of championed environmental causes. So I grew up in a very cool household, (laughs) I think, um, with great parents who encouraged me to look and listen and learn from the environment and to speak up and to do something when I would see it not in proper health. My mother spent a bit of her childhood out here in the far west, and so we originally came out here just as a, um, you know, school holiday trip, check out where mum grew up, and, you know, the five of us crammed in the car. I think, you know, we just tumbled out of it and were like, wow, like, (laughs) what a place, like, what a horizon, what a wild landscape and an amazing rural community out here. And land out in the far west at that point too because it's a a semi-arid environment um, was relatively affordable compared with the higher productive regions um, on the eastern seaboard. (laughs) So I guess my parents always had intention that they would love to have a a block of land and to semi-base themselves out there. And it wasn't until we actually did a a visit, a, a family holiday out to Broken Hill that they really thought, wow, this is the place, like, yeah. Was it a really difficult choice for the family? And then, as you said, you sort of walked out of the car and saw the beauty of it, but was it a difficult choice? And, yeah, that interconnection, that that connection to nature, they, did they, was that part of the attraction for the family, I guess? 
initially it was an interest in the environment that we we would love to have um you know a, a place to call our own and you know a um a place to roam and explore and have a have a house on it wasn't until yeah that we actually spent a bit of time here that we really um developed that that sense of connection and that sense of belonging to a place and I think that really formed over probably a number of years actually and over a number of events I mean the more one spent time with this place significant events were occurring I mean I, I now look across the the property and I, you know, I, I see the old creek bed where we used to have our Easter egg hunts as kids. And, you know, I see the place where um, I had my engagement party and we strung up fairy lights from the gum trees, boulders in our front yard where we scattered my grandfather's ashes. Like I now see my story in amongst this landscape. And I think if I ever left this place, it's not, you know, the the income that one generates from a farm. It's not, you know, the, the house or the infrastructure. It's those events and memories that occur in a place, in amongst the landscape, um, that actually really make it home and then an extension of yourself, a part of yourself. And that's what really drives me to work so, so much on the climate cause because when I see, like, those old ancient river red gum trees um, that we've had birthday parties and celebrations beneath, when I see those trees now dying, like, that really affects me because I know that not only have they been there for, you know, up to 500 years, but they've they've brung me personally so much joy, um, and I have such a, a responsibility at this point in time, you know, being here to actually look after this place that I call home. So it's that that really gives me my fuel and my energy to go forward in my work. It's it's the landscape that I call home and that sense of connection to it and responsibility to it. Yeah, the idea of grief um, comes to mind often when people talk about climate change because I know I felt it the first time I really sort of not not heard about it, but when I dug into it, dug you know, dug into the idea of what was happening, it was like there was grief. You know, the, everything I thought was real, everything I thought was right, you know, just living your life, getting a job, getting a car, you know, just doing what you need to do, that, you know, narrative that we're sold just comes crashing down. When was the first moment that you, I guess, suffered from that grief or felt that grief or and or did you first of all? And then when you, from hearing about climate change, you know, what was the the feelings? When was the time? And, and how did you go from feeling that hurt and, and that pain and realisation of the reality to then saying, I've got to actually do something about this? Yeah. No, it's a very real emotion that so many of us feel who are very connected with the climate cause, you know, who really have taken the time to look at the science and what it says and the urgency and the magnitude of it. One can feel very overwhelmed by it. And also when one has such a connection and love of places, of landscapes, of community, and 
to recognise how they are changing in a negative way or thinking how they will be adversely affected on this current trajectory does fill people with a great sadness and a sense of grief for the changes occurring and what can or will occur in the future. And I've experienced it in waves um, from sort of a mild sadness, yeah, right through to a, a real, yeah, a real sadness. Um, and it's come from, I guess, the drought times have been particularly difficult. And I reflect on, yeah, sort of two years ago, 2019 um, was a really, really bad drought year where we just got so little rain. And I stopped going to certain parts of the property you know, my own home, like I I couldn't drive into the back paddock because it looked so bad and we had sold all our sheep. And even that process, like I remember the last truck of sheep that we moved off the property, I was here by myself and, you know, the truck driver arrived and I helped him load them up and just like watching his taillights like drive out of the driveway and me just standing there in the empty sheep yards. It was just, it was really tough it was really heartbreaking to know that that was pretty much you know us closing the chapter on our sheep like I think in a way it is good to feel those emotions at certain times because I mean we're not robots like (laughs) we, we should feel sad by what's occurring in the world and we should feel um you know challenged by it and concerned by it uh but we shouldn't stop at those emotions yes you know allow yourself the time and the space to be there and hold that sadness and that grief um and do what you need to do at that point whether it's take a week a month off and just read a book on the couch or whether it's you know um catching up with friends or you know stepping back from the climate cause and just focusing on doing art and painting or whatever that brings you joy and energy but I think it's it's important then to also know that that grief, that frustration, that, that sadness can be a source of energy to do something. And there have been times where I've gone out and I've, like, we have a, an old mulga tree woodland here and it's, it's dying quite significantly um, because it's getting so dry in this region uh, and they're very, very old trees. And... When I see those trees, like I do feel, you know, such a sense of loss looking at the ones that have that have already died. But I go out there and I make videos and I take photos of them and I share their story because that's what I can do. I can try and do my little bit to communicate this part of the world and this story and what's happening in my region. Because if I don't, who is going to share that story of those mulga trees? No one is. So I I can do my little bit and I will harness that concern I have and I will translate that into something positive. I will work out what I can do and hopefully by engaging other people with this story, despite its challenges and its gravity, um, you know, I do believe that we'll figure out how to get out of it together.
So you, you started off with farming as your as the basis of this and seeing what was going on around you on the farm. What sort of discussions were happening around Broken Hill and with other farmers? Like what connection did you have with the community and the locals and what was their take on what was happening? Did you have to convince people of the, the climate, that they were seeing that the climate was changing with their eyes, but did was the science understood? Was it something you had to bring across? Was it something that was already there and in, ingrained in people? How, what was the journey there? Mm, quite varied in that, yes, out here in the far west, there's no denying that it is getting very hot out here and it is getting very dry and the dust storms are suffocating when the seasons are really bad. So that is, you know, smack bang in people's faces out here. So they understand the challenges of the environment very really. Of course, there are people who will not attribute that to human-induced climate change and will point it to other factors or even if they think that something is going on, potentially they don't want to vocalise it because it can still be unfortunately, a challenging term to vocalise in in some communities. But I believe you need to keep on talking about it. So I then started running events in Broken Hill, bringing out scientists, having community gatherings about the topic. I set up a social media and a website platform called ClimateWise Agriculture, where I was sharing information that I was learning at university at the time, you know, interesting articles, observations, and people sort of, I guess, started um, like gathering virtually around me. And, and I was like, wow, there are actually a lot of people out here who share similar concerns and are doing amazing things. And so even though I am you know, very remote out here on a sheep station in far western New South Wales. Like, I don't actually see a lot of people <laughs> in the flesh. <laughs> um, I actually feel like I've got an amazing community that I am a part of. And for one example, um, I'm part of the Farmers for Climate Action community, which we formed five years ago. And we have over 6,000 farming members part of it. And we have these amazing online catch-ups and events. And we're in constant, you know, communication and conversation about the challenges that are happening, but also like what we're doing and what we can do about it. So I feel like there is a lot of community interest and support out there. And it has come a, a very long way in the last decade, five years especially, so I feel like we're moving in the right direction and I do feel like we're actually at a social tipping point now where there are so many people engaged in this who are concerned about this and it is just, you know, waiting for the right spark of leadership and knowing what to do and then I, I believe things will tumble very quickly in the right, in the right way. The key word there is leadership and I just want to unpack it with you. How did you, and this is a question I ask myself when I have my, you know, spurs of energy and I want to do something and then my moments where I just want to be in bed or hide away and pretend things don't exist. How did you get the energy and then maintain the energy to, to first of all say I'm going to do a science degree and then I'm going to not only just do this for myself and then go back to the farm but share my knowledge 
empower myself to then empower others. How did you find that motivation within you? Was it something that you, you know, ingrained in you from a young age or was it something you had to learn? You know, this leadership and this desire to be more than just you and just be more Mm. than just help yourself. How did you end up building that capacity? Yeah, um, I guess I would joke that I don't have much of a social life, so uh, <laughs> what else is there to do? Um, but no, seriously, I I draw my strength and energy from the landscape and from this place that I am so fortunate to call home. And, you know, every morning, every evening, I bookend my day, you know, walking out into the paddock and with my Kelpie dogs and, um, you know, seeing the galahs and the, the beautiful flowers coming out. And I really draw a lot of, like, energy and strength from that because I see how resilient the landscape is. And I'm part of the farming community who... I don't know, they're a special breed of people who, you know, every day another challenge gets thrown at them, whether, you know, the cattle have broken through the fence or the windmill has, um, you know, stopped turning. And they're out there with a pair of pliers and some wire and they're fixing it. Like they're generally not people who sit on the couch, point a finger and wait for someone else to fix the problem. They get up and they do something about it. And so I think being around people with that mentality and that work ethic has really got me in that mind frame also. But I guess also, yeah, going back to your question too of how I like really sustain it and think about it is that it's almost that if I can save my home, then we have managed to save the world. And so I think about it of what I can do to save my family's farm. And that means I communicate about the drought. I I write articles about climate change. I'm studying the the soil carbon and the vegetation and I'm participating in citizen science projects to understand the species out here and how they are changing. I'm learning as much as I can um, from this place and then using that to help create, you know, something better. It really brings that um, act local, think global idea, um, you know, to to the fore because, yeah, as you said, you know, you're on the edge of the world in in a sense. I mean, your farm and the area around your farm will feel the effects of this almost before anywhere else. It's almost like working on the barrier reef or, you know, on the edge of the Sahara Desert or, you know, there's places in the world that are going to feel the effects and are feeling the effects right now and have been for a while. And when that battle's lost, you know, that the battle's lost. So to to try and save your farm and to think of it like that brings that personal engagement, but then with that motivation of of others and, you know, empowering others too, which is great. You talked about the... I guess that constant idea of a of a battle between what's happening and the and the science and just that that mindset. But the the but as you said, there's six thousand members and there's other organisations organising farmers. You know that are sometimes the the greatest push for change and for policy. And then there's the latte sipping lefties in Fitzroy and Brunswick like me um, <laughs> that, that um, sometimes give farmers a bad rap and give, you know, those in that are actually out there with 
fixing everything and, and being resilient, almost saying, you know, get your act together and let, let's do something. But while we're in our in the city, um, have you found that you've had to almost fight for your community and fight for the farming and, and rural community as well with, I guess, people that would support you in the urban environments? Um, there's a there's a battle there as well as a collaborative engagement. Yeah, that's an interesting one. And yeah, I I love sipping on a latte too. So <laughs> I I sometimes feel like the the narrative that yeah some politicians use behind the lectern yes. about it's it's them versus us. It, it doesn't really help because I mean we're all in this situation together and we've all got to get out of it together. But yes, obviously because ninety nine percent of the population in Australia lives in an urban environment and is not involved with agriculture, there is a, a real disconnect there. And so when you're part of the farming community, I mean, we have to do a very good job uh, to actually get our stories heard in the media. And one would hope that, you know, people in urban environments are also asking, like, where's their food coming from and what's happening out in, in rural Australia too? Like, there has to be this two-way flow of interest and communication so the agricultural sector holds a very unique position on the topic of climate change in that it is part of the problem. It is, you know, a, a major contributor to the climate crisis in terms of the removal of vegetation, deforestation, uh, emissions, um, methane from ruminants, nitrous oxide from fertiliser. All of these things contribute uh, adversely to climate change. The agricultural sector is also one of the most vulnerable and most exposed sectors to the impacts. As you rightly said earlier, we are the first, some of the first people to feel the true impacts of climate change because farmers live and work so closely with the natural world. We see the droughts, we, you know, we witness the bushfires and the floods, the changes in rainfall, we see different pests and diseases coming and destroying our crops. And then the third part of this unique story for agriculture is that we are a major, major part of the solution to getting ourselves out of this mess. So in terms of reducing emissions from society and the economy, agriculture has to do that. In terms of actually drawing down carbon that we've already put up into our atmosphere and sequestering it, putting it back where it belongs in the soils and vegetations, that's you know, largely up to the, la the land managers, the farmers. So we play an absolutely critical role in this climate conversation. Unfortunately, a lot of the narrative on climate change is often oversimplified in that it's this problem that needs this solution. And it doesn't actually drill down to the complexities of this system and how it's so interrelated and changes in such an aspect will actually influence all the others. So when someone says, you know, stop eating meats, you know, this is the way to solve climate change or, you know, stop livestock farming, um, you know, that will cut out all methane emissions. I mean, it's too simple and it's it's wrong. It doesn't work and unfortunately it won't work that way. So we absolutely have to look at local contexts, um, work out nuanced, tailored solutions, uh, give viable pathways, uh, alternatives for people to 
adapt to and deal with. I really do believe that farmers truly care about their landscapes. Um, I mean, they are more than just a business. They are their homes. Many of these homes are intergenerational. I mean, they are passed down from grandparents to the grandkids and such. And so they have no interest in destroying the land and making a quick buck. That's not what the farmers that I know are doing for sure. But a lot of them have their back pushed against the wall and are potentially involved in unsustainable practices for a whole variety of reasons. And we need to be questioning, well, why are they removing trees? Why are they using unsustainable fertiliser practices? Why is there poor animal welfare? Whatever the issue is that one identifies and follow the chain back through the whys to work out actually what is driving this problem. Is it because the farmers actually do not have the financial resources to destock a property during drought because we have advertisements on our TV every night saying prices are down, down, down. You know, you want the cheapest possible food. Okay, that is not actually helping farmers have the financial capacity to adapt to a changing climate. So I think we have to do a lot better of questioning the systems and working out how to actually improve them as a whole. And that's not leaving it up to one person or one industry to figure it out and to make an adjustment in a fragmented manner. It is about all of us having, you know, better conversations, um, constructive conversations about how do we change the system as a whole and how do we get the most um, benefit and flow on benefit to all these different aspects that are so interrelated. Do you have an example or something that you're proud of that have shifted practices or found a way to make some necessary changes, whether it's messaging, whether it's on the ground? Do you have something like that? Because often there's a problem, there's a solution that's potential, but then it seems too large and, and people shy away saying, oh, I thought I could just stop eating meat and it would all be okay and it's not that. Or, you know, I I thought I could just buy these free-range eggs and everything will be okay again. Um, Mm. But it's not. Is there something that you've seen that is holistic? Well, I think that, you know, things that I'm personally proud of and proud of with the organisation Farmers for Climate Action is not actually being prescriptive and saying that everyone should do this one, two, three things and we'll get out of this mess. It's actually encouraging people to look at their sphere of influence and make adjustments where they can. Because what I can do is a lot different from what my neighbour or my friend can do, because we all have different capacity. I mean, I love communicating. I love talking to podcasts and radio and writing books. But other people, they they don't want to do that or they don't have the skills to be that communicator of the issue. Um, but maybe they have, you know, amazing skills in to reinvent the, the transport sector, um, which I definitely don't. I'm, I'm not a car person at all, but <laughs> I really appreciate that person doing that effort. And so I think it is about realizing that we each hold unique skills and capacity to make positive change and it can start within our our households and it might feel 
small and meaningless, you know, recycling the soft plastics or, you know, <laughs> doing things like that, buying Australian local produce and not international produce. But if everyone just did, you know, a few things like that every day and was more conscious about how they're interacting with the planet, was more conscious about how they're consuming goods and services, more conscious about where they're directing their money, actually supporting things that are doing good for this planet, that are encouraging, you know, regenerative farming systems, that are, um, you know, encouraging healthy, nutritious food sources, you know, not buying an overly packaged packet of whatever flown in from the other side of the world that has a huge carbon footprint, thinking about how can I eat local, seasonal, nutrient-dense foods that does something good for my body um, and pay a, a fair price that supports a farmer. So I can't offer a simple solution other than to offer that everyone has the capacity to to make that positive change but it will be different from from individual to individual and that's not something that we should shy away from or you know downplay it is it's very important are you hopeful that people can make the change yeah i am and i i actually look at the covid situation for this um and i think Yes, I mean, there's a lot of things that have not gone very well with the COVID situation, but <laughs> putting that aside for just a moment, the way that COVID has been communicated and it has changed behaviour globally in such a short period of time, that actually gives me hope. And I think there are a lot of lessons that we can learn from this situation, the COVID crisis, that can be applied to the climate crisis. And I think... Okay, imagine if we had our premier and the head of science um, at the lectern every night in front of all the cameras and this was being communicated broadcast on the nightly news. You know, everyone has the update, the scrolling update on their news feed about, you know, this, the climate situation, about, um, you know, the damage that is being done, the lives being lost from air pollution. I mean, 7 million people die a year from air pollution. Like, this is horrific, but we don't ever read those stats. And then give people the practical steps. Well, you as an individual can do this, and we as a nation are doing this, and we're going to get ourselves out of this mess together by working together. Yes, it's going to be challenging. Yes, the situation is urgent, but... We can do it, and this is how we're going to do it. If climate change was it was communicated in that way, if we were told a better narrative of this is the science, this is what the best science is telling us, we're going to listen to it, we're going to respect it, and we're going to build our strategies off that, and we're going to give you updated information all the time um, so you are, are best informed about how you can do something as an individual and how we are acting as a community to get ourselves out of this mess. Like, they're the lessons that I think we can draw from COVID that would actually go a great deal in solving the climate crisis. That gives me hope because I've been talking to friends recently about the, the opposite effect and the, the almost, not hopelessness, but the pessimism I have for climate because of what hasn't been done with COVID. And, and by that I mean the protests that are going on right, you know, in Melbourne at the moment 
about not wanting to have a vaccination or not wanting to lock down. You know, I get I get the anger, I get the anxiety and the fear and the misinformation that they're sort of swallowed and things like that. But I wonder that this is right in our face. There's no denying the realities of this, you know, if you look at it for more than a couple of minutes. You, you see the realities of what's going on around the world and the places that have not acted and the death rate and the, the pain and the suffering that's been caused because of that inaction. And still people are refused to get on board. And that, but that's a minority. I guess if there's 1,000 or 2,000 people in a state of 6 million or 7 million, then that's what the focus has to be on, like to focus on that positive. And the fact is our governments have actually thought about the best interests of lives, of you know, people on the essential in the essential work industries, um, teachers, nurses, the healthcare system, emergency services, those that are you know on the shop fronts to make sure that they're not putting themselves in harm's way every day um, needlessly. So, yeah, that focus to look at the positives is a good you know a reminder for us. Um, you know, the way that we feel in in Victoria and probably New South Wales at the moment, or parts of Sydney anyway. Yeah, no, I I totally agree with what you're saying, and I think that um, if the COVID crisis was actually being dealt with the way that cr- the climate crisis is being dealt with, the COVID situation would be terrible. I mean, if we actually dismissed and downplayed the science, the warnings, if we all just went around with a, ah, she'll be right manner, you know, the, the COVID will, it'll sort itself out. Um, it's not too bad. Let's focus on the economy. Um, who cares about the lives? Uh, we would be a lot worse off. So I think there are definitely lessons that can be learned and applied to the yeah, tackling climate change. And I guess the power brokers, the, the powers that influence sort of support action on COVID and get people vaccinated so we can get back to earning money or whatever it is, you know, our business. Mm. Whereas climate, it seems too far off, even though it's probably not. But for many organisations and industries, there might be a, you know, oh, we'll do something, you know, by 2050 or whatever, but there isn't that urgency and that need right now. What is your argument to, to the people that say it's climate or the economy? You know, I don't, it's not that simple, is it? What's, what's your take on that? Yeah, well, firstly, I think you're yeah entirely correct in that people don't feel like it's in their home the way that they feel like COVID is like on their doorstep and they will go and get vaccinated and they will put a mask on and they will sanitise and wash their hands and stay 1.5 metres away because they feel COVID is very much here, there, and it's an immediate threat. And a lot of people don't feel that with climate change unfortunately, because it is just as much, if not a much greater threat than COVID right now. The cost of climate inaction greatly outweighs the cost of actually acting on it now. And we know that because we have experienced heartbreaking droughts, um, you know, horrific bushfires, floods that, you know, wash away infrastructure and livestock and livelihoods. And that has serious economic damage, putting aside, you know, the mental health impacts, the loss of lives and livestock and all of that. Climate change is definitely bad for business. Uh, It takes a lot of time for people to rebuild after devastating events like that. And a lot of people 
can't actually rebuild and you see farmers walking off the land who have been there for, you know, four generations. You know, great-grandparents have purchased this place but the drought times are getting so bad so long that they no longer know how to farm um, in these conditions and so they leave their properties you know, that they're stories that happen in, in my part of the world, out here in far western New South Wales. But if we actually act on climate, it opens up all these opportunities. And before I mention acting on climate, um, actually a recent ABARES report said um, the average Australian farm is losing $30,000 a year due to climate change. Like, so they're are studies that have been done showing that there is significant financial losses occurring in the agricultural industry already because of the worsened climate conditions we now experience. So that's not even, you know, in the future we'll be losing money. It's it's now. In terms of the, the options out there that actually improve and support farming businesses, there is an abundance. For instance, let's think of renewable energies. So farmers have expansive parcels of land. If they are ones to host solar panels and wind turbines, they can potentially be earning secondary and stable sources of income, you know, financial security that helps them ride out the rough times like the drought. Uh, Renewable energy obviously reduces the operating costs of the farming business. So with greater financial security, again, the farmer has options to actually invest that money in trying new practices, improving the infrastructure, swapping from flood irrigation to drip irrigation and saving water resources, keeping that water in the river system. It gives them options to employ more people, so actually keeping jobs um, in rural towns making sure that there isn't the loss of, you know, young people to the city centres if they can actually have secure jobs and careers in rural environments. Uh, there's, you know, a, a lot of things in terms of, say, the more we learn about um, improved fertiliser practices, if we put them at the right depth and placement and timing in the season, then you're not actually losing those nutrients to the atmosphere. For instance, the application of urea, which applies nitrogen to crops, a lot of that can potentially be lost as nitrous oxide to the atmosphere, which is 300 times global warming potential than carbon dioxide. But if the farmer has better information on how to apply it properly, then not only are they saving money because they don't have to buy as much nitrogen fertiliser, Um, it's doing less environmental damage. Um, We also need to be looking forward in terms of improving biodiversity in Australia and sequestering carbon back into the landscapes. These schemes, these national schemes related to carbon farming, carbon sequestration, biodiversity initiatives that actually can pay farmers to make sure that they're improving carbon in the soil, in the vegetation, improving species numbers and abundance. And again, that offers the financial security and certainty for farmers to really do their best to improve, to regenerate sections of the landscape that they don't feel financially pressured to overgraze or to clear or to plant more 
because that's the only financial way to actually earn a buck from the land. So we have to be looking at diverse income streams. But it becomes more and more challenging to put in place those practices the worse the climate becomes. It becomes more and more challenging to get carbon back into the ground the hotter the ground becomes, you know, in a heated world. So that's why there is great urgency to be implementing those solutions, those strategies right now because we have greatest opportunity to be, you know, making the most of them and, yeah, getting a financial reward from employing them too. There's got to be that, that balance between that bottom-up and top-down approach to changes. And I often talk about the internal versus external battle of trying to improve our lives. And the internal, for me, is recognising what you're, what you're doing. What, what things am I doing that I'm hypocritical about? What am I, you know, I say that I care about the farming industry, yet I'm getting the dollar per litre, you know, milk or the... Um, going to the same shops with, you know, packaging from overseas or whatever. So there's that battle of what you can do. But often people look at the top down and say, well, if that's not happening over there at a government level, at a at, a, at an industry level, then, you know, what's the point of what I can do? But often those things are interlinked, you know, the, the market forces, the who we elect, who we provide money for. I know that there's often changes in what ends up on the supermarket shelves if people are willing to pick those up instead of the the wrapped bananas from you know wherever so that is that is one battle your book it talks about both it talks about reinvigorating people to to feel the want to change as well as giving solutions that industries can take and and big solutions I just want to go back to COVID as an example people think that all right all I've got to do is rock up to a, a hub and get a jab and my job is done. But then when you start talking about that the hard work will start from that point, you know, things aren't just magically better. There's still work to be done. People start saying, well, what's the point of getting this? Or what's the point of doing that? Often um, people still doing it, but there's that feel of I just want this to be over or better by my one choice. But my belief is that we have to recognise and be courageous to, to realise this is a journey now, this is the rest of our lives, that we can't just go on a fad eight-week diet and we're super healthy and then go back to eating pizza every night. Wish I wish I could. But, you know, um, there, there's a journey. You know, you have to maintain this. So that in climate for me is the reason why people that I talk to and, and communicate with don't take action because it's not this one-stop shop you know, I'll do this action and it will be better. It seems like this will go on forever and what's the point of trying? So that internal battle has to be won first and then maybe we can start convincing convincing others. Maybe you can convince me that I'm wrong and, and, I, and there's an easier way or there's, you know, more optimism. But <laughs> what do you think? Yeah, it's, it's a challenge and it's a complex and I don't think we should downplay that either and sort of say, yeah, you know, one quick jab and you know the world's solved it's not going to work like that and and I think we have to be courageous and front up to those challenges and the reality of what the science is saying and the difficulty of the the system we have in place and I hope from that place one then actually encourages and encourages other people to think 
radically and creatively and really challenge the status quo and go, okay, well, what we're doing currently isn't working. And if we really dared to imagine something different, what would that look like? And how would we put that in place? Yes, it is easy to sort of throw up one's hands and go, well, you know, it's too big. Um, you know, it has to come from the high levels to, to change the system. But we make the systems. Like we as individuals are the cogs, you know, we, we actually influence, you know, who's in government and what they stand for. We actually put our money towards goods and services which shape this world and economy and put the pollution up in the atmosphere or not. And so I think the onus of responsibility ultimately then does does fall back on us as the individual to actually really question, like, what are we doing? And to recognise that our individual actions do have a flow-on effect. They do have a a flow-on effect that changes this system for good or worse, and we need to also be approaching this challenge with sort of a a long-term perspective too in that Yes, it is going to be challenging and difficult and we've got to start today. We should have started yesterday and, you know, some people have started yesterday, which is great. Um, so we're on our way. But, yeah, it, it's it's not going to be, you know, done by the weekend. We've really got to work hard at this. But we can do that. We can work hard at this and we should because there is so much beauty and wonder and incredible species in this world and landscapes that provoke you know the most amazing feelings and those places should be protected and conserved and I think this sort of circles back to the start of our conversation of actually feeling connected to places actually feeling like we're a part of this world to um recognize that our story is intertwined with this planet and we we are choosing the story for our planet by what we are doing today. Beautifully said. Uh, Externalising the problem and making it somewhere else or someone else's issue is almost putting your head in the sand like the ostrich does, whereas actually realising that we are contributing, no matter how good we are and how much we want to and wish we were helping, it's not a blame game, but we are the issue. I am the issue. But that means that I am the solution. And then once you realise you are the problem, then you are the solution, which empowers you. And then it can lead to that pride in action of of what you you improve, you know, just simply seeing worms in a compost bin in the backyard or, you know, helping someone fix their nature strip and instead of it being dirt, just, you know, dried out yellow lawn, you, you put some nice, um, I don't know, I saw one a yard with all the succulents there and, and you know, beautiful areas for native plants for the bees to go and thrive. And, you know, this is an opportunity just to see that that change occur and, and be really mm-hmm. proud of where you are. And, and you're a living proof of someone that's focusing on your farm and your neck of the woods, but then by sharing that both scientifically and through storytelling and engagement, you know, and education and everything, then you're able to to make that a world, you know, an issue for the world and and people are drawn to you and want to find out from you what 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 do we do next? Which you know, I'm I'm talking to you right now. You said yes to this. You know, you you're, you're not just some magic thing at the far away. That you're you're a person that 
just grew up like anyone else and saw a need and actually just said, I'm going to do something about this, um, yeah. which, which shows that we've got power and that, you know, there is no conspiracy bringing us all down. We can actually make this work. There are battles and there are forces working against the right thing sometimes, but we're strong enough to do something. So thank you for that, for sharing that. It's, it's lovely to, lovely to hear. No, that was so well said. Yes. And I love that. Yeah, we are the problem and that means we're also the solution. What is your quick fire couple of sentence message of hope? Um, that we can get out of this mess and it starts with us and it starts in our homes. And finally, the question I ask to all my guests is based on the name of the podcast. Have you had a moment of clarity recently that you'd like to share with us today? I feel like I have moments of clarity every afternoon when I go outside and I sit by, you know, the dam or I walk along the creek bed and I see, you know, the sunsets and the trees and the birds and I'm just reminded, um, you know, at the end and at the start of every day that this landscape is just so beautiful and precious and fragile and it's our responsibility at this point in time to look after it. That's beautiful, Anika. Thank you so much for joining me. And um, I've I've learned so much and you've, you know, brought me out of my pessimism into a more optimistic mindset. So thank you for that. <laughs> Thanks so much, Matt. It's been a great chat. If you enjoyed the conversation today, please subscribe, share with your friends and family, and leave a review. If you would like to contact me, provide feedback, or have access to someone you believe would be a great guest on the podcast, you can contact me on Instagram or Facebook at Moments of Clarity Podcast or on Twitter at BarneyMOC. You can also email me on Moments of Clarity Podcast at gmail.com. Once again, thank you for joining me on Moments of Clarity.